This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on Understanding the Autism Spectrum. I am Dr. Donnelly Snipes. Today we're going to explore the symptoms and strengths of people with autism spectrum disorders. I'm going to call them ASDs from here on out, just so I don't trip over my tongue as much. We'll identify co-occurring issues of people with ASDs and discuss how those diagnoses might contribute to behavioral issues. It's important when we're working with someone who has an ASD to understand that sometimes they can't communicate effectively what their needs are or what they're feeling. And if they have something else going on, it may not be an outside stimulus. It may be GI upset or something else. Then they may react in behavioral ways to try to get try to get your attention, try to get you to understand or to try to self-soothe. So we do need to understand and really examine the meaning behind the behavior. We're going to learn about trauma-informed issues when working with people with ASDs. That is a whole class in and of itself. We're just going to skim over it real quick, but I think it's really important to recognize the fact that people who are neuroatypical may perceive the neurotypical world as very overwhelming, and it can be very traumatic to them um, for, for a variety of different reasons. So we do need to recognize that many people with ASDs are going to have some trauma-related issues. We'll identify interventions to help caregivers better assist their child who has an ASD and identify common diagnostic instruments for ASDs. Why is it called a spectrum? Well, because people with ASDs can have a range of symptoms from very mild, almost imperceptible, to very perceptible and very problematic. When the DSM-5 came out, they kind of glumped everything together, including Asperger's and autism disorder and a couple of other diagnoses, into this ginormous catch-all diagnosis of autism spectrum disorders. And that met with a bunch of 
frustration from people who work with others with uh, ASDs, but it is what it is. So you do want to recognize that you can have people who are extremely high functioning and you can have people who are really struggling. Um, well, here we go. Childhood disintegrative disorder, autism, and Asperger's were all combined to create the autism spectrum disorder. Why are we talking about this today? You may see adults. Well, adults have autism. You don't grow out of autism. Um, so adults who are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder likely have it in adulthood. Adults who are diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder or maybe not diagnosed um, and they may present in your clinic at a much higher frequency than someone who doesn't have these neuroatypical issues. The CDC estimates the prevalence of autism in the United States to be one in 59 births. Just kind of let that sink in for a second. You know, next time you go to church, look around or you go to the Walmart or the grocery store, there's probably at least 118 people there. So out of that 118, there's probably two people there who are somewhere on the spectrum, if you want to think about it that way. A lot of people that we're seeing may be on the spectrum. And it's interesting, if you go into some of the ASPE forums, to see how they look for people who are similarly neuroatypical in the media. And there's a lot of debate out there about whether certain characters are supposed to be being portrayed as having some level of autism or not but they do see themselves in some of the media which is good we're going to talk about at the end some programs some movies and some television shows that probably represent characters that have some level of autism spectrum issues and it can be really um, validating for people with autism to recognize to see themselves uh, in the media. <clears throat> so let's talk about symptoms really quick. If you're not familiar, then, you know, let's kind of go over this. And we're going to talk about strengths while we're going through symptoms. Instead of really looking at symptoms as weaknesses or problems, let's look at them as challenges and strengths. A person who's on the spectrum may have persistent deficits in social communication and social interaction across multiple contexts. So it's not just when they're in front of girls or when they are in front of, you know, the pastor or whomever that they have difficulty. It's, you know, pervasive as manifested by the following. And this can be deficits in social emotional reciprocity, having difficulty giving and taking in in relationships, ranging from abnormal social approaches or a failure of normal back-and-forth conversation. Um, they can be very matter-of-fact and just say it is what it is. They're done with what they have to say, and they may walk off. Whereas in a normal conversation or a typical conversation, we may, you know, say what we have to say and then continue to make small talk. There could be reduced sharing of interests, emotions, or affect, and failure to initiate or respond to social interactions. Some people who are on the spectrum aren't aware of social cues. They don't pick up on those, you know, smiles or, or social cues that may come from others. So they may have difficulty navigating relationships. Now let's talk about some strengths that may come out of this if you want to embrace the dialectics. People who are on the spectrum typically communicate very directly. They say what they mean and they mean what they say and they don't sugarcoat it, which 
in our society, we're used to being told to be nice and sugarcoat things and, you know, tell people what they want to hear. People who are on the spectrum may not do that. They may just say, you asked a question, I gave you an answer. What's the problem? They tend to be very honest with their opinions. And as evidenced, you know, as a result, they may play fewer, quote, head games and have fewer hidden agendas. They say what they mean. And there is a show... Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. I should have put this at the beginning. Um, there's a show online um, on Netflix called The Bridge that was done in 2013. There's another one that was done in 2011. You want to watch the one that was done in 2013. And the lead character is a detective who has who is high-functioning, but she is on the spectrum. And she's very blunt in what she has to say. She doesn't sugarcoat things. There was an example. They were eating dinner at her partner's house. And she didn't like what was served. And his, her partner's wife said, no, do you enjoy dinner? And she said, no, I don't like the taste of it, and pushed her plate away. And in typical interactions, we probably would sugarcoat it and say, you know, I'm not very hungry right now, or make some other excuse. But she was asked a question. She gave a direct answer. Didn't see a problem with it. So it's... A different way of interacting is it better or worse you know you could argue either way but irrelevant it's how they interact so let's embrace it they are going to be you know you, you what you see is what you get and they also tend to listen non-judgmentally they're not thinking about you know what is this person might be meaning by what they're saying they take what they hear at face value they're not anticipating someone sugarcoating something or you know trying to tell them what they think they want to hear, which can be really liberating when someone is listening non-judgmentally. And like I said, they take in whatever you say as, you know, fact, if you will. They're very literal with what they say. These can be challenges with the way the uh, neurotypical community c communicates, but if you understand the way they communicate, you know, it can also be a blessing because, you know, it just kind of, it's right there. They may have deficits in nonverbal communicative behaviors used for social interaction, ranging from poorly integrated verbal and nonverbal communication, so their words and their nonverbals may not match, or they may have very little in the way of nonverbals to abnormalities in eye contact and body language, or deficits in understanding and use of gestures, to a complete total lack of facial expressions and nonverbal communication. A lot of children with ASD, when they are young, they don't smile. They don't make direct eye contact. The stuff that we, when we have a little three or six month old and we're playing peekaboo and goo goo and whatever else we're playing, we like to get that feedback when they smile. I remember when my kid smiled the first time, I was just like, oh, he smiled. And my mother-in-law was like, Naz, just gas. <laughs> really? <laughs> I was so excited that he smiled at me. But those are the things that we look for in our interactions that parents get frustrated when they don't receive from their child who may be on the spectrum. One thing to recognize or 
realize is a lot of times people with who are on the spectrum think in terms of pictures or videos they don't think in terms of words they think in terms of snapshots so think of having a graphic novel going through your mind at all times and that's how they understand things very visually a lot of times they may have persistent deficits in social communications including deficits in developing maintaining understanding relationships ranging from difficulties adjusting behavior to suit various social contexts so school versus home versus playtime versus mealtime to difficulties in sharing imaginative play or in making friends to absence of interest in peers at all they may just not want anything to do with peers why is this let's remember behavior communicates to us what is this behavior telling us the behavior may be telling us they don't understand their peers their behavior may be telling us their peers are overwhelming and overstimulating or their behavior may be telling us they just have no interest they are interested in trains or dinosaurs and their peers are interested in baseball and video games and okay well i don't have an interest in that so i'm going to go over here and Play with my trains the person with the who's on the spectrum doesn't take that as they're not like well, i'm going to be proud to go over here and play because you don't want to play with me they're just like well we don't have similar interests so no harm no foul i'm going to do what makes me happy wouldn't it be great if we could all do that sometimes and and not take it personally yes there are downsides because they have difficulty trying to get interested in something they're not interested in however one of the things that is cool is that they're less concerned about what others may think of them and they can be more independent in their thinking they're not worried about you know am i wearing the right thing or what's this person thinking if they're wondering what somebody's thinking they're probably going to ask but they're less concerned with those things they're less concerned with well maybe in order to be liked i need to learn how to play this video game so i can play with them that's doesn't even really cross their mind usually now every person with autism let me stop here and say every person with autism is different you know you've met one person with autism you've met one person with autism so I don't want to say that anything I say today is true for every person with autism these are gross generalities however it's interesting to look for those things because a lot of times as people who are neurotypical we impose our interpretations on children and say oh they must be lonely or they must be devastated that those kids didn't want to play with them or whatever the case may be and that may not be the case we need to ask the person who's on the spectrum you know, what do you think about that or how do you feel about that they may have difficulty recognizing and processing the feelings of others which is sometimes called mind blindness which may result in others believing that the individual with autism doesn't have empathy or understand them well one thing and it was a really cool article i read but the gist of it is that a lot of our emotional understanding and think of what you do when you're in session looking at a client you know you don't look at their feet you look at their face a lot of our emotional understanding is derived from looking at people's eyes and mouths and making you know direct contact which people who are on the spectrum don't do so it's hard for them to understand and interpret emotions because they're not seeing them if they're not looking at that person's face and this is not to say you want to train people 
people on the spectrum to look at other people's faces all the time. That would be totally overwhelming to a lot of them. But it is important to recognize that it's not that they don't have empathy. They have a lot of empathy. They just may not be able to see and read the signals because they're not looking in the right places. And Renee indicates that she had one client that said uh, he or she looked more at the mouth than the eyes because that's where the information is coming from. Well, think about that. If you just looked at somebody's mouth the whole time, yeah, you have little micro expressions, frowns and smiles, but you get so much more information from their eyes and their eyebrows and the whole face, not just the mouth. So you can see how that person might be missing some cues. People who are on the spectrum do have a fantastic ability to read people. You know, some have a lot of difficulty, but then there are others who have a fantastic ability. Fiona and Sherlock on elementary, they are very good at assessing people and figuring out kind of what's going on and being, well, obviously Sherlock, more of a, more suspicious and more looking for uh, misguidance, analytical. Thank you. But a lot of people with autism do want those of us who are neurotypical to know that not everybody with autism has difficulty reading people. And again, you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. They may also have restricted repetitive patterns of behavior, interests, or activities as manifested by stereotyped or repetitive movements, use of objects, or speech. They may flap their hands, rock, jump, twirl, or arrange and rearrange objects or make repetitive sounds like clicking, clicking their tongue, um, or use words or phrases repeatedly. Sometimes the behavior is self-stimulating, such as wiggling fingers in front of their eyes. We want to understand what the behavior is doing. Is the behavior self-soothing because they are overstimulated and they're trying to, you know, pull it together? or trying to block out sounds, or is the behavior stimulating because they are understimulated? People who are on the spectrum can be overstimulated or understimulated um, based on, you know, what amount of input they're getting. And uh, so not, you can take somebody with autism into a grocery store, for example, and some people will find that way overwhelming, and some people will find that not a big deal. It's understimulating to them. They may also have an insistence on sameness, inflexible adherence to routines or ritualized patterns or verbal, a verbal and nonverbal behavior. A lot of times there may be extreme distress at small changes, difficulties with transitions. You can see where this could be a problem in school, for example, going from one class to another or from one class to recess to lunch. I mean, those are three different settings completely. Rigid thinking patterns, greeting rituals, and the need to take the same route or eat the same food every day. They can be very uh, structured in what they do. They may at pay attention to minor details, but fail to see how these details fit in to the bigger picture of what's going on. Others have difficulty with complex thinking that requires holding more than one train of thought simultaneously. Like, if I do this, what would happen? But if I did this, what would happen? This is when pictures can be very helpful. If they can draw it out, write it down. Others have difficulty maintaining their attention or organizing their thoughts and actions, which, again, if since they tend to think visually, helping them write it down 
can be extremely helpful for younger children having cards that they can use if they need to that have different pictures on them may help them communicate a little bit more more effectively they may have highly restricted fixated interests that are abnormal in intensity or focus and i don't like the word abnormal but that's what the dsm has that are different in intensity or focus than the average child if you will they may have a strong attachment to or preoccupation with unusual objects or excessively circumscribed or perseverative interests they may be interested in trains in one show i think it's on hulu that i'm watching it's called atypical and this young man has a fascination with antarctica especially antarctic penguins but everything kind of comes back to this and his he's fascinated with penguins and he has huge attention to detail in that um, they also can have preoccupation with other just basic inanimate objects like clocks knives calendars guns um renee's giving me some suggestions here anything that catches their interest so it may not be what you would expect like dinosaurs or trains it could be something completely different now clocks can be kind of cool especially you know, big clocks little clocks how do they work you know there's a lot to know about clocks so what level is abnormal in intensity you know we want to look at uh, is it causing them psychosocial distress they also may um be highly skilled in a particular area partly because of their attention to detail and interest in something you know a very circumscribed area of interest which can be really cool so that person may be an expert on you know some kind of genetics or you know clocks like i said you know being a clocksmith is or watchsmith whatever they call them clockmaker uh, takes a lot of detail music nancy points out you know they can be extremely skilled and they have a deep studying interest and a passion which can result in encyclopedic knowledge so if you want to know everything there is to know about bugs for example you know that person may know something about it when my son was little um and he's not on the spectrum but he had and this is you know again where we want to identify the fact that some kids have a really passionate interest in something by the time he was eight he had memorized the peterson's guide to birds of the eastern united states and to this day he still remembers them but all he wanted to talk about was birds uh, now he had other interests you know he'd watch movies with his sister and stuff like that but he was fascinated with that and had i swore he was going to be an ornithologist until he got a little bit older but some kids will focus like erica says some kids focus on things that they have an interest in and if they are able to share other interests you know that's an indication that they're that's probably not a symptom of being on the spectrum but if they can only be interested in that thing then that might be an indication that they have a symptom of being on the spectrum but again it could be used as a strength if they use their passion and their encyclopedic knowledge to be an expert they may have hyper or hypo reactivity to sensory input or unusual interests in sensory impact aspects of the environment uh, they some kids or people 
may have um, apparent indifferences to pain or to temperature, and others may notice a, a change in one degree, and it's just overwhelming to them. Or they could have adverse responses to specific sounds or textures, have excessive smelling or touching of objects, or visual fascination with lights or movement. Now, think about little kids. What do we put above their, their cribs? We put mobiles up there where there's something moving or there's lights. You can put a little light show on. Kids are fascinated by lights and movement. So just because they're fascinated doesn't necessarily mean they're on the spectrum. But we do want to be aware if we are working or caring for or in a relationship of some sort with someone who's on the spectrum of what is important to them. Um, and we, again, we also want to recognize that children who are neurotypical may have an adverse response to specific sounds or textures. How many kids do you know that have eating issues because they don't like the, the texture of something in their mouth? You know, that's not that abnormal. How do we separate autism from OCD? Well, many times people with autism have obsessive behaviors, if you will. They have repetitive behaviors. But a person with OCD generally can't control his or her thoughts or behaviors, even when those thoughts or behaviors are recognized as excessive. They spend at least one hour a day on these thoughts or behaviors. They don't get pleasure when performing the behaviors or rituals, but may feel a brief relief from the anxiety that are caused by the thoughts that they're having. They may experience significant problems in their daily life to these thoughts or behaviors, but they have no other symptoms of autism spectrum disorders. Now, remember that when people who are on the spectrum start stimming, stim, S-T-I-M is short for stimulation, it can be because they're upset, it can be because they're overwhelmed, and that is a behavior that helps them get control, if you will, or it could be because they've got pain or something else going on. So we do see that people with, there's a high correlation between OCD and ASD, but you don't want to assume that every person with OCD has autism spectrum and vice versa. Medications that are effective in people with OCD include some tricyclic antidepressants and several newer SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Those Medications also may be effective for the OCD symptoms in people who are on the spectrum. Let's transition. So we've talked about the general characteristics or symptoms of people with autism spectrum disorders. But one of the things that we don't really realize is there are a lot of co-occurring issues. And these co-occurring issues can affect how they feel and how they act and how they react and complicate or make it make their treatment picture a little bit more challenging. 30% of people with autism, roughly, have some form of epilepsy. Hmm. Let that sink in for a second. Now, some people with epilepsy and some people who are on the spectrum with epilepsy will have grand mal seizures. And we all know what those look like, so that's not, you know, going to be a surprise to us. Uh, but some people with epilepsy and and or um, ASD, if they're having seizures, they also may have absence seizures, which cause the person to blank out or stare into space for a few seconds. Sometimes we perceive this as the person, 
you know, becoming catatonic or, you know, not paying attention or being rude, or you can find all kinds of negative attributions. But let's look. Is there something medical going on? Are they having an absence seizure? Are they just blanking out for a second? What can cause this? Well, hyperventilation. We know that when people on the spectrum get upset, get distressed, a lot of times they start to hyperventilate, like most of us do. That's that whole fight or flight thing. That can trigger an absence seizure. Malfunctioning fluorescent lights. That's one of my little pet peeves when I go anywhere, where you have a fluorescent light that's flickering, can trigger a seizure. And it, these things can tri trigger both absence or grand mal seizures, so do be aware. Intense strobe lights, like visual fire alarms. We used to have one in my dormitory, and the noise was just deafening, but that light that would blink, especially when it was dark outside, or going into some sort of a club. Uh, generally, the blinking of like neon lights on a sign are not at the right frequency and intensity to trigger a seizure, but you need to talk with people. Other things that we don't think of include natural lights, such as sunlight, especially when it's shimmering off the water or flickering through trees or through the slats of blinds. For me, I don't have absence seizures, but I get really motion sick if we're driving down a street, a tree-lined street, and the sun is flickering in and it's just flickering on and off, on and off as the sun comes through the, through the leaves. It's beautiful, but it makes me sicker than a dog. So I can understand how that kind of light may trigger a stronger reaction in somebody who has epilepsy. Be aware of that. So traveling could be overwhelming. And certain visual patterns, especially stripes of contrasting colors, can, be, can trigger epilepsy. Now, generally, the bigger stripes, you know, like you see on little kids' shirts, aren't that big of a deal, but it's the smaller stripes that can be um, triggering. These are all environmental things that we do want to pay attention to, not only in our clinics, but also help parents pay attention to in the home and help teachers pay attention to in the classroom. Gastrointestinal problems. 46 to 85% of people with ASDs have GI problems. Pain caused by GI issues is sometimes recognized because of a change in a child's behavior such as increased in self-soothing behaviors like rocking or outbursts of aggression or self-injury. Well, what causes GI problems? It could be stimulus causing stress. It could be things they eat, which is where we get the food sensitivities in people with autism spectrum disorders. Because some foods, just like some foods may upset your tummy, some foods may upset their, their bellies. And they may not be able to articulate exactly what's going on, but they know that they're in pain. And they may, some may put the two and two together and realize when I eat this, it makes, makes me hurt. So when they're offered whatever that food is, they may become upset and engage in outbursts of aggression or some sort of other undesirable behavior. Always back up and say, what is this behavior communicating to me? Why, you know, you've had chicken nuggets before. Why is it now when I give you chicken nuggets, when I present the plate, it causes you great distress? Other co-occurring issues can include feeding. So not just gastrointestinal issues, but there could be sensory issues with feeding. Tastes, textures, temperatures of foods may be 
problematic for the person with autism. They're not just being a, quote, picky eater. It's truly an overwhelming sensation, especially if they have high, uh, if they are easily um, hypersensitive to, to stimuli. Something that is hot or spicy may be overwhelming to their taste buds. Sleep disturbances are prevalent in 53% of people with ASDs. You know, I, I've gone over sleep and it's important so many times. If you have a person on the spectrum who's not getting adequate sleep, then just like the rest of us, they are going to probably have more difficulty being clear-headed and dealing with life on life's terms as they go through the next day. And the more sleep-deprived they become, the more erratic their behavior may become, just like the rest of us. This is not something unique to people with ASDs, but the sleep disturbances are something that you may need to take care of. Um, some people, you know, I, I know one young man who is on the spectrum, he has no problem with sleeping at all, so it's not an issue for him. I know other people who have to sleep with weighted blankets in order to help them feel secure enough to go to sleep. There are others that have to have certain white noise going on. It's important to work with a sleep specialist if the child is not sleeping or the person is not sleeping effectively to figure out what needs to happen in their environment to help them get that quality sleep. It's so important for the overall outcome. About 20% of people on the spectrum have ADD or ADHD. About 30% have diagnosable generalized anxiety disorder or social anxiety issues. About 24% have major depressive disorder. And as I said earlier, there's a not an insignificant portion that also have co-occurring OCD. All of these things need to be factored into the treatment plan. Challenges from social impairments. Some children with ASDs do not develop a perception of themselves as active agents that can deal with novel, incongruent, disorganizing information and regularly experience emotional dysregulation. So blah, 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 what does that mean? Um, a lot of children don't have self-efficacy is basically what it comes down to. A lot of children with AF ASDs don't believe they can handle changes. And when changes happen... They become dysregulated emotionally and behaviorally. Social impairments with children with ASDs interfere with the ability for caregivers to be responsive or sensitive, especially when they're young. You know, think about how children think. Remember, they think dichotomously. There's all that stuff with attachment. And by the way, people who are on the spectrum can form attachments, can form a secure attachments. They just may look a little different than what we expect to see in the neurotypical population. But I digress. Uh, ch children's ability to communicate what's going on and to self-soothe and do that kind of stuff early on, since they are having difficulty doing that, they may not be able to communicate to their caregivers what they need. So the caregiver is just kind of, kind of grasping at straws. Lack of ability to be responsive, you know, it's not that the caregivers aren't trying. They just aren't sure how to read this child's cues because there may not be, they may be deadpan, as somebody said earlier, or they may not be communicating in a way we would expect. So the caregivers are at their wit's end. But this lack of ability to understand what the child needs and be responsive and provide timely support 
prohibits the child from developing a safe route to exploration and growth in some cases. So the child will, you know, potentially be exposed to something outside of their comfort zone. And they remember that when they were exposed to something outside their comfort zone before, that was really unpleasant and they don't want to go back there again. Think about neurotypical children. You know, we encourage them to go outside their comfort zone, but then the parents are there to communicate with them and to help de-escalate them and support them through this exploration experience. We're the secure base. In a lot of children with ASDs, they don't have that secure base because they haven't been able to communicate when they need support or what type of support they need. Children with ASDs form generalized expectations that engaging in new situations is going to have catastrophic consequences. Um, like if they go out bike riding, you know, they expect that it's going to be this horrible experience, so they may not want to try it. They don't like making mistakes. Um, this is true. And because of that, because they don't like making mistakes, because they like to know what's going on, they need, you know, think about if you have difficulty interpreting your environment. You kind of want to maintain control so you know what to expect. And when something happens and the children don't know what to expect, it can cause them to dysregulate. Again, children's, when they're real young, they tend to think in dichotomous things. I either succeeded or I failed, or I'm good or I'm bad. And... With neurotypical children, you know, we have conversations with them about what went well and what didn't go well and, you know, yada, yada. And we help mitigate those dichotomous concrete thoughts and help them mitigate their interpretations of things so they can learn to embrace the dialectics, if you will, and enjoy exploration and understand that failure is okay. But a lot of children with ASD are not able to take that step. Parents of children with ASD spend considerable energy just obtaining their child's attention, which often distracts from energy used to enhance their interaction. So they spend a whole lot of time just trying to get Johnny to pay attention. And then by the time they do that, they're too exhausted to, you know, make this a really exciting adventure. It's just like, okay, fine. We're finally in the car. Let's just go and get this over with. Parents of children with ASDs must employ a more high-intensity and directive method of parenting, such as increased physical contact, as well as providing cues and prompts. Now, for one, this can be exhausting. But for two, the physical contact, a lot of people with ASDs do not like to be touched. So it's a fine balance that the parents are, are struggling with, and especially when they were young, probably before they were diagnosed, the parents probably used a lot of touch to correct them in what they were doing, and that could have been perceived as overwhelming and traumatic to the, to the person with sensory issues, to the person on the, on the spectrum. So from the time they were little, and I'm not blaming the parents, the parents didn't know they were trying to parent their child, um, but they may have ex had some traumatic experiences. So as they grow older, parents may still be using some increased physical contact to get the person with the ASD to do what they need to do or keep them safe. And a lot of times we see that when a child starts engaging in self-injurious behaviors. Uh, 
and that is a double-edged sword because you're trying to keep the child safe, but it's also being perceived as invasive and unwelcome in many cases by the person with ASD. It's something that parents need to, or caregivers need to work with the person with ASD and, you know, when they're little, um, therapists to help figure out how to best help the child when they're in a situation when that the parent either needs their attention or needs to keep them safe. By toddlerhood, most children with ASDs have switched from passivity to more active avoidance and emotional disengagement. They hypothesized this is often due to well-meaning caregivers trying to fix, normalize, or understand them. You know, if you don't understand that your child's on the spectrum and it seems like they're not paying attention, you can't get their attention, you can't get them to smile, you may be trying, okay, let's see, what else can we do that might make you smile? What else can I do to get your attention? And it bombarding them, trying to get them to behave the, the way the parents expect them to behave. Um, this creates what's considered a negative mutual influence cycle in which both parents and children are unwitt unwittingly propelled to respond to one another in increasingly abnormal ways that dramatically impact their sub subsequent relationship. This is why early intervention is so, so important. The earlier the child receives a diagnosis or a preliminary diagnosis, the more likely that this negative mutual influence cycle is not going to happen. But imagine if you're working with your infant, you're playing with your infant, you're trying to get them to smile and they won't do it. So you're like, okay, let me tickle you. Let me give you raspberries. And the kid is just going, please stop. But at six months old, they can't say that. So when the child sees that caregiver the next time, they may go, oh gosh, here it comes again. And they may start disengaging as a self-protective reaction. Unfortunately, you know, once that happens, then the child associates overstimulation with that parent and acts with avoidance. When the parent interprets that avoidance, they may get their feelings hurt or they may be frustrated and go, oh, I can't do anything with that child. And they become more avoidant. So the gap between the two grows increasingly. Among people with autism, Less extreme experiences, including fire alarms, the loss of a family pet, or even a stranger's offhand comment can also be destabilizing. Like um, Renee said a few minutes ago, they don't like making mistakes, and they may not understand when people make an offhanded comment that is rude or inappropriate or hurtful. And that can be extremely destabilizing because they don't know how to react to it. People with ASDs may display PTSD, PTSD differently than the general population as well. We don't want to, obviously you have your same categories. You have your emotional numbing and your um, flashbacks and those sorts of things. But those behaviors or the, those symptoms may be covered up by some of the ASD type behaviors like the self-stimulation. And... Children as early as two, and I've even seen 18 months, need to be assessed by the pediatrician at the well check. You know, if the child is not making eye contact, is not smiling like you would expect, even at six months or a year, there needs to be an awareness flag raised and, you know, increasing um, assessments of what's going on so the child can 
get assessed by the early intervention team. Every state has one, and the early intervention team can really help parents understand what's going on. It is important, too, that professionals, I'm not just going to say pediatricians, anybody who has contact with parents with infants or even older children, um, provides them information so they understand autism. It may not be their kid. It may be one of their kid's friends because people with autism do have friends, uh, but it's important for them to understand um, what it looks like and the fact that, you know, these people are not, these children are not having behavioral issues or they're not acting out because of poor parenting. They are destabilized and they are having difficulty um, getting restabilized. Impact of parent-child disruption. Well, because of this relationship disruption, which happens um, or can happen, especially if there's not early intervention, there's a reduced exposure to parental guides who can provide growth-promoting opportunities. If you have a child that's avoiding the parent and a parent that's avoiding the child because they just don't know what to do with them, then they're not getting together. They're not going to the park. They're not doing anything that would be growth-promoting. Um, Parents can tailor these growth-promoting opportunities to their child's uniqueness and use gradual scaffolding to increase the degrees of exposure to the unpredictability and stress in the real world. So let's start with, if you like the Antarctic, okay, let's get books from the library and read together about the Antarctic. Um, then maybe let's go to an exhibit at SeaWorld about the Antarctic at a time when it's not super busy, and then gradually use scaffolding to use that interest to expose them to more real-world real situations. Reduced exposure to the hours of guided practice with parents that prepare them to successfully navigate interpersonal relationships and learn skills, values, habits, and mindsets of their more experienced guides. Children on the spectrum typically don't want to hang out with mom and dad that's, or brother and sister or whomever. That's just not what they do. So not having those interactions, they don't practice. And, you know, if you've got siblings or, you know, your children have siblings, you know, they learned how to interact with one another through interaction with their friends and one another and each other. So if they're not having this exposure, it can delay their preparation for interpersonal relationships. You can participate. I found uh, the other day there's actually a dating site for adults with autism, which is kind of interesting. Um, obviously, I'd want to scope it out and see how many of them were just catfish. But um, it is important for people who are on the spectrum to know other people who are on the spectrum, and that can be really helpful. And peer mentoring can also be used in the right circumstances. Other impacts of the parent-child relationship disruption include re reduced exposure to conversations with parents, which enable them to identify and communicate their experiences and come to understand and value themselves and their internal world, as well as that of others. That whole reciprocity, how are you feeling, what are you thinking stuff, they don't usually engage in. And reduced exposure to a relationship which one becomes increasingly internalized so that through their own internal dialogues, they can autonomously pursue mental and self-growth. With neurotypical children, we encourage them to, you know, look inside and say, well, how do you feel about that? 
What do you think about that? You know, how can you develop your courage or your motivation? Children on the spectrum are often not having these conversations. So interventions, the fun part, be consistent. You know, they, people on the spectrum like predictability. Stick to a schedule, ensure adequate quality sleep, reward good behavior. Instead of just punishing the, well, instead of punishing the bad behavior, use mistakes as teachable moments and reward good behavior. When they do good things, make sure to highlight that. Try to create teachable, um, try to create safety zones with visual cues, whether it's their room or at home, where they can go and there's, it, they feel safe. Pay attention to the kinds of sounds they make, their facial expressions, and the gestures they use when they're tired, hungry, or they want something. Sometimes they can't verbally communicate it. Remember, they think in pictures. So when somebody's hungry or their stomach hurts, what picture do you see in your mind? Maybe them holding, holding their stomach. That might indicate that they're hungry. Could indicate they're cold or whatever. But you want to pay attention. The child is communicating, thinking in their head in pictures. So what picture might they display that's trying to communicate something to you? Always find the motivation behind the behaviors. And remember to make time for fun. People on the spectrum love to have fun. They just may do it and behave a little bit differently than you would expect. They may not be cheering and yelling and, you know, being all giddy and doing that. They may be very calm and content, but it's fun for them. Pay attention to sensory over or under sensitivities and their impact on behaviors. We all know when we get bored, you know, we're understimulated. We can get agitated, restless, yada, yada. But when we're overstimulated, and we've all been there at one time or another to a limited extent. Compared to someone who is neuroatypical, it may be, it may pale in comparison. But just using your own experience of a time when you've been overstimulated, how did that impact your behaviors, your patience, your attitude? Teach tasks in small steps using visual cues. So, for example, if you're teaching um, how to load the dishwasher, maybe you teach them how to rinse off the, the silverware first and then show a picture of what it looks like when the silverware is in the basket in the dishwasher. Um, using those pictures to communicate what you need to do, especially for small children, is especially helpful. They may not be verbal enough to read yet. So using pictures and using scaffolding. Make sure parents seek respite care. If they, are, if they have a child who is on the spectrum, it can be extremely frustrating for them, um, and it can be extremely exhausting for them sometimes, depending on where that child is on the spectrum. And even high-functioning um, people on the spectrum, you know, those with Asperger's, sometimes people with Asperger's are so passionate about what they're excited about that they can, as one person said, talk your ear off. And that can be exhausting too, almost, almost as exhausting as constantly trying to get somebody's attention. Encourage parents to remember that they are human beings. They are people. They are caregivers, but they are also people and not to lose themselves completely. They may need to explore individual marriage or family counseling to understand and deal with what's going on with the, the person with the spectrum disorder. 
Encourage keeping a daily schedule using text and or pictures so the person knows what to expect. You know, you can have a day chart that they can look at. <clears throat> Break large tasks like cleaning your room into smaller tasks. You know, don't just... My kids had a hard time doing that. If I would just say, go clean your room, where do I start? Um, so we broke it down into smaller tasks. The first thing was to get everything off the flat surfaces and in a pile in, in, in my house, in a pile in the middle of the room because I don't like flat surfaces to be cluttered. <laughs> the next thing was to make their bed. The next thing after that was to get rid of the pile in the middle of the room and then their room would be clean. And we had a picture of what the room looked like when it was clean so they could compare what their room was to what it was supposed to look like. Teach interpersonal interactions through cartooning and um, social stories is one tool that you can use, but you can also use other. There are great free cartooning programs online that youth can download and they can work with designing their own cartoon strips or graphic novels um, to communicate what's going on. And sometimes it helps them to do that. <clears throat> If the child communicates effectively in pictures, help them communicate by using drawings. Try to use the term challenges instead of weaknesses because, as we talked about earlier, some of the, quote, symptoms of being on the spectrum can be perceived as strengths in some ways. So look at it as challenges or differences. Explain the diagnosis to the person. As they get older, they'll be, they'll be able to handle more complicated diagnoses and always keep a safety kit with you if you're a caregiver and we went over that a couple weeks ago when we did the other presentation on autism but in a safety kit you have things like a weighted vest if that helps um, noise count canceling headphones if that helps sunglasses if that helps anything that helps the child restabilize when they're feeling destabilized so examples of autism in the media, Rain Man is one of the examples people think about immediately, but he was not high functioning. And I really want to emphasize the fact that there are a lot of people out there who are high functioning. And Big Bang Theory came up in some of the forums I was looking in where they were arguing about whether um, Sheldon and his now wife, I can't remember what her name is, um, were on the spectrum and there, there were arguments either way but if a person who's on the spectrum sees themselves in that amy thank you sees themselves in that then great you know because sheldon is very successful etc what's eating gilbert grape and fly away were also recommended as good examples of autism in the media atypical is the series that i'm watching right now and i can tell you I, I went into it assuming that it was going to be this empowering story about a person with autism. Um, however, uh, sometimes I, I, when I'm watching it, I feel more like I'm at work. So you, but you do see a lot of the struggles of the family and the person on the spectrum in Atypical. It's a very, um, from what I understand from reading the reviews, it's a very accurate presentation. Um, but it's not all, you know, roses and, and, and rainbows. <clears throat> the Good Doctor, Renee points out, that did not make the list, but he actually is openly autistic um, on that, and it is a great 
um, great show. Um, Temple Grandin does, redesigned the standards for humane handling and processing, they use that term so euphemistically, of cattle. She is a brilliant PhD with um, in animal service. I don't know what her PhD is in, but she's brilliant. I love listening to her. She's got such compassion for the animals. But she is also on the spectrum, and there's a movie about her called Temple Grandin, and she also has her own website, so check it out. <clears throat> um, on the bridge, that show I told you about that I'm watching, Sonia Cross is the detective. She is a, has high-functioning um, and on the spectrum. The Closer um, is a different television series, but in the episode called You Are Here, they had a youth that was on the spectrum. We talked earlier about Sherlock and Temperance Brennan on Bones. So those are just a few examples. You, the best place to find examples of autism in the media is to go into forums where people who have um, autism are, are talking. Autism spectrum disorders look different for every single person. What we talked about today is kind of like when we talk about multicultural counseling. We're starting with, you know, giving you some general information, and from that general information, you can become more specific with each person. I have this general field of understanding of what might be going on now. Which of these applies to you? <clears throat> Early intervention with autism spectrum disorders can help prevent traumatization enhance parent-child interactions, and enhance self-esteem and efficacy of both the child and the caregiver. A lot of times caregivers feel very frustrated because they think they're doing something wrong when their child isn't responding to them the way they expect. Resources. I have a bunch of resources that you can print out to um, help people who have been diagnosed with Autism, a 100-day kit for families. They have one for elementary, school age, and I think they have one for adults. And then age-appropriate autism materials to help educate um, families as well as friends. All of those are in uh, the PowerPoint. You can click on those links. And then clinical instruments. I didn't figure you wanted me going through all of these, but they are, there is a slide that has some clinical in instruments you can use to screen for autism um, or diagnose autism. There's a lot of stuff there. And, you know, remembering that autism is a spectrum and understanding each person and each, well, each person as unique, regardless of their age, they may have one symptom. You know, do they meet the criteria for a diagnosis of autism? You know, maybe not. But we still need to address that one symptom if it is bothering them. So we do need to pay more attention to it and become more aware. Because remember, 1 in 59, that is a lot of people who fall somewhere on the spectrum. <clears throat> and some of those, oh, golly, golly, golly. The 100-day kit for families and Next Steps, A Guide for Families New to Autism are two things, two handouts, if you will. Um, 100 Day Kit is a big, it's a booklet. It's probably 100 pages, 150 pages, something like that. But <clears throat> it will help address some of the shame issues that some parents face because they think they did something wrong. And it helps educate them about the fact that, you know, it was Probably nothing you did. The child is just 
born with different abilities than the rest of us. Support groups are really helpful, but if they're not ready to go there because they still, you know, once they understand autism and they grieve, you know, a lot of parents need to grieve the fact that their child is not typical. And once they embrace that a little bit and recognize that their child is, you know, wonderfully unique, then they're able to start going to support groups. A lot of support groups, though, do welcome members who, you know, really aren't ready to accept the diagnosis yet, and they're there to help people through that shame phase. But getting them to go, um, yeah, increasing motivation to get them to go to a support group is really challenging. Another thing I would suggest is go on the Autism Speaks website and look for any online support groups that the person may be able to go to. So maybe if she has a little bit more anonymity, then it might help her ease her way into actual face-to-face -face support groups. And yes, we still don't know what's creating this. The Well, I will just stop. We don't know what's creating it. There's a lot of hypotheses, but for every hypothesis, there's research out there saying, no, that's not it. So I don't know what's causing it, but we do know that we're diagnosing it more. Now, my question is, just sort of a curious question is, is the prevalence increasing that much or are we becoming more aware of it so we're diagnosing it more? You know, who knows? This autism information for social workers and counselors is a real brief handout, but it can give you some, you know, tips to work with. And transitions, preparing for a lifetime is talking about helping a youth transition from high school to, you know, next level, whether it be college or, you know, job or whatever it is. Alrighty, everybody, if there are no other questions, thank you for being here today, and I will see you, um, Misty will be here on Thursday, and I will see you next Tuesday.